2: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Thank you, Hannah. Thank you very much, everybody. Good evening to you. It's very nice for me to be here again, particularly to discuss something that sounds so dramatic a new world order sounds something enormous, a moment that we should all be waking up and thinking, change is all around us. Is that really where we are? Next to me tonight, I'm delighted to see, is Professor Geoffrey Sachs. Um, I've just come from interviewing Michael Gove, of course, our former Education Secretary, who said during our referendum campaign, people have rather had enough of experts. Don't be too alarmed by that as a foreign visitor. (laughs) I'm remaining (laughs) calm. (laughs) I think even he would acknowledge it probably wasn't perhaps his his finest moment. But as we know, not everyone who markets themselves as an expert necessarily is one. But here is somebody who could only be described as an expert. Um, Professor Sachs is a professor at Columbia, a special advisor to Ban Ki-moon at the UN.
3: Antonio Guterres. Of course. Our new Secretary General.
0: Secretary General, who lucky lucky to have you, a best-selling author, his newspaper columnist, uh, who's published around the world, and whose latest book, Building the New American Economy: Smart, Fair, Sustainable, is recently out and will be available for you to buy in the foyer, special signed copies um, at the end of our session tonight. Um, We will be reflecting on recent events in America, recent events around the world, and although I'd like to start. Professor Sachs, by saying you are not somebody who you would associate with the views of the new president of the United States. Do you find yourself in some ways optimistic about what he might do?
3: No. (laughs) Uh, It's been a a growing horror uh, over the last few weeks because I was hoping that we could find Silver linings uh, maybe there will be a few, uh, but he 's really bizarre uh, and quite and quite dangerous, uh, and so i don 't think that um, this is a good moment. Uh, there are a few things uh, that he said that I think are right, many things that are absolutely uh, mean uh, and false uh, and uh, and dangerous. And so this is not a good period. That's obvious. Uh, and what we do about it and how uh, we adjust uh, and respond, I think, is is really important.
0: In terms of dangerous, why do you say dangerous? Because it's one thing having somebody who you say, okay, well, he's this larger-than-life character who seems to change his mind from one minute to another. He's a bit of a cartoon. Why do you think he's dangerous?
3: He certainly seems dangerous. You know, we're not... uh, We're living through a live, online, in-print debate among the psychologists. Is he crazy or not? Uh, And uh, it's pretty much a divided professional opinion. Uh, Some say he's uh, just obnoxious, uh, and others say he's a malignant narcissist. Uh, Others say he's a psychopath. Um, Those are... Meant in a clinical sense, by the way, because these are people that are reporting. This man has taken a view uh, that, uh, and apparently the one uh, given to him by his father, that there are killers and there are losers, Uh, and that is really a a view of the world that is um, dangerous, Uh, especially since he sees himself as the killer side of, uh, of the story and he sees me as the loser side of the story. So I don't, uh, you know, I'm, oh my God, an Upper West Side academic. Uh, that is one of the <laughs> lowest forms of life imaginable to, uh, to, to, to this guy. Um, Let's
0: come back to, to, to Trump perhaps in a second, although I... I wonder how big your repertoire of groans could be. We could maybe go, go through some of that the next hour and a half, but beyond Upper West Side academics feeling like an endangered species. Yes. What, in your view, are the biggest risks right now? You know, you say this is a very dangerous time, but what are, those biggest, what are the big risks?
3: The big risk is that our generation is the last one that can address absolutely pivotal environmental threats on the planet. Uh, And we're the last ones that can do it because we're so close to dangerous thresholds that if we waste another generation, of course, the Earth will survive, uh, much of humanity will survive, but we will no longer be able to avoid a lot of calamities. And so we're the last ones on that threshold uh, of course, there's the, the normal, the quote, normal existential challenge uh, that we face, which is that we're utterly capable of destroying everything because of the nuclear weapons. And it should be the highest purpose in life to keep people like Mr. Trump away anywhere from that, uh, that, that amount of power. Um, so we have the normal problems that we faced for the last 75 years of not blowing ourselves up, and we're, we're not great at that. We're in the 100th anniversary of World War I, which was the world's dumbest and probably most consequential war, uh, and that, it was a war with no reason, uh, but it ended up uh, upending everything. But in addition to that, we're in this unique situation of environmental crisis that is astounding very dangerous and against a huge powerful momentum and vested interests on the planet because after 200 years of the modern economy, it is right to think that the oil and the gas sector is the world's most powerful lobby. And they are absolutely, um, they're so powerful, the whole State Department was handed to Exxon Mobil, it's a branch of Exxon Mobil now, uh and that's not an accident. Uh I don't know why uh Tillerson left his job of CEO, because he could have also headed this little branch called the State <laughs> Department also. It's a subsidiary. Uh, yeah, because we don't even care about ethics in the United States uh, also, so I don't think there really would have been too much complaint in Washington about that. It would have uh, clarified matters actually. Um but but the point is We've gone on for so long without addressing these facts that we're really uh, at the end of the tether. That's what the Paris Climate Agreement in December 2015 was about. It was the world saying, okay, we'll try, we'll try to do something. Uh, And then we now have uh, Trump, Tillerson, uh, Pruitt, who is uh, a man who's made a living by getting payments from the oil and gas industry so that he can sue against all regulations uh, on climate in the United States. It's a, it's a little bit uh, worrisome. So you told me to put aside Trump. I'll put aside Trump for a moment. We need to transform the world's energy system and we need to stop destroying large areas of nature so that we don't cause a collapse of biodiversity on the planet. And doing those two things would be hard, period. Even if we had cooperation of governments because our energy system is so deeply entrained for more than 100 years to be an oil, gas, coal energy system that we have very big difficulties of making that change in a short period of time. And that's what we would be focusing on. Then we would also, if we got past the crises, which are manageable, real, and serious, we would also reflect on the fact that if we were just a little bit nicer to each other, we could actually solve a lot of problems that people have around the world, hunger, extreme poverty, deaths by diseases like malaria or AIDS, all of which are solvable, and which are causing a lot of misery, and causing a lot of instability. So if you turn it to the good side, the good side is we're at a moment of incredible technological flowering, uh, really uh, a a wondrous period of know-how, and yet we can't seem to deploy it for solving a lot of critical issues and doing a lot of good on the planet. But if we were serious, that's what we'd be doing. Since this is a serious group, I hope we figure out in our discussion tonight how to get better organized to do it.
0: With respect though, some of the particularly the environmental arguments have been made now for a couple of decades. Mainstream politicians have tried from time to time to incorporate them into their sale, their offer to different electorates and electorates haven't necessarily been very interested. So why now, how now, do you start to make an impact?
3: I think the problem is, by and large, that politics is mostly disconnected at this point from the well-being of the people that are supposed to be uh, the the, uh, agents of our politics, and our politicians are also so driven by short-term considerations that they don't understand these issues and they don't put them out clearly for the public to understand. We have no intelligent discussion in the United States on anything anymore. Uh, we really don't. We have 140-character Foreign policy, domestic policy, (laughs) vulgarity, fake news, this news, that news. It's not at all real in, in the sense that it could conceivably be about problem solving. We have most members of Congress that are flat out liars, and they're lying because they depend on campaign contributions and they depend on campaign contributions from powerful lobbies, oil and gas being number one, that terrifies them. And their jobs are strange jobs. Uh, Their job is only I have to stay in office because the next best thing for me is way lower. And so they're mainly not looking at speaking about the truth, solving the problems for me uh, or the rest of Americans or explaining these issues to the public right now. Can
0: I just flip some of what you were saying on its head, though? You said right now people have never been so disconnected from politicians in terms of politicians looking out for their well-being. For some people in this country, for a lot of people in this country, and for a lot of people in the United States, arguably, for the first time in decades, they feel the opposite is true. They feel they have politicians who are actually... Listening to them, it's true. And the fault, perhaps, then—dare I suggest it—is of people who were trying to put forward expert views um, in terms of not listening hard enough to what many, many members of the population were saying to them.
3: It's a, it's absolutely true. Uh, and by the way, when we came to vote. There was no doubt we weren't voting for this guy. But checking the box for Hillary was very tough, I have to tell you.
0: Well, why was it difficult And and it was tough
3: because the Obama administration lied relentlessly as well. And that was one of our more serious presidents. But the methods of governing right now are dishonest. And they're absolutely infantilizing of the publics. We don't have real discussion, we don't have real uh, analysis, and because also in the particular case of the United States, we are the heir of the British Empire, we're the American Empire, everything is a lie about foreign affairs as well because much of our time is spent in covert military, operations never explained to the American people, and Obama was a tiny bit better. I mean, Bush was awful. Uh, Obama was a, a little bit better than that, but he was fighting wars all over the place, none of which was explained to the American people. So I'm, I'm not happy with politicians in general, and it's not Trump versus Obama. I was no fan, uh, even though I was uh, you know, I, I voted for him twice. I cried tears of joy uh, in November 2008. I really thought this was it, um, and it wasn't it. Uh, we, we did not get the real change that we had been promised, and we didn't even get truth uh, in explaining the choices before us. So my view is it's a guess. Uh, there are a lot of things uh, that I don't necessarily like in the attitudes of uh, a lot of uh, other Americans right now, and no doubt they find me a bit of a pill. Um, And they tell me that on Twitter and email often, so I get some nice feedback.
0: There are, however, some things that you have written about that President Trump has identified. The need, for example, to rebuild a lot of America's very creaky infrastructure. Trump as the builder, there are some things, for example, his attitude to NAFTA that you have not necessarily applauded, but you do have some areas of common cause of his analysis of things that need to be done.
3: I really liked his uh, election night acceptance speech more or less, (laughs) if I remember correctly. But he used the word build three times and he said we're going to build infrastructure and I wrote a very enthusiastic op-ed the next day. Oh my God, I agreed with something. Could um,
0: the shock overcome you?
3: Here's the issue, uh, and it's uh, it's also not quite, uh, I'd say, the same here, but there are some similarities. The United States had its last infrastructure building around 1975, and if you go to America, your first experience when you get off of BA or whatever flight you get off of is the elevator doesn't work, and the uh, escalator is broken, and you walk down the steps, uh, and uh, then there's a long walk because the walkway isn't working. Everything's broken. And then you get in a cab, maybe you have to walk a long way now because the airport's in disrepair. Uh, And then as you're going into New York, everything's under construction, and you might get caught in a lane that is not construction, I mean reconstruction, rehab, because the highway system was built in the 1960s and 1970s. In the meantime, while you've been talking about a runway and we've been talking about tax cuts, China's built 20,000 kilometers of fast rail. Uh, And they caught up with the United States in uh, becoming the biggest economy in the world. And that's a reality. So if Trump would actually build something, I'd be all for it. The, The problem is what to build. So the first two things he wants to build are the keystone pipe, well, three things, sorry. How could I forget? <laughs> you were better than I am. You got it. They weren't okay. changing. The they wall! <laughs> Just what we need a $21 billion wall.
0: Paid for by Mexico, of course.
3: In an era when the net migration is negative into the United States. Negative. The Mexicans can't find jobs. They're going home for the last six years. But we've got to spend $21 billion on the wall. That's number one. And then the second thing is he wants to build the Dakota uh, bypass pipeline and uh, Dakota Access. And the third is the worst project, the Keystone XL pipeline, which is a pipeline to take Canadian oil sands to American refineries in Louisiana. Believe me, the one thing this world absolutely doesn't need under any stretch of the imagination is Canadian oil sands. Why? Because the most basic point of climate change is we already got more than all the oil and gas we can possibly safely use in the planet. And the oil sands are carbon intensive and very high cost to produce. So it's ridiculous to aim there when we don't need that. We already have a massive global overhang. So my only pleasure in the Keystone Pipeline is the hope that some, that's not really a hope, I'm being facetious, but I wouldn't mind if some rich people bought the bonds of that and then went broke afterwards. (laughs) Because they've got due warning. That's a lousy investment. So those are the first three infrastructure projects that we have, not one of them makes any sense. And then how many Trump Towers can you have around the country? (laughs) We have enough hotels, uh, and uh, the problem is that for real infrastructure, it requires planning. Planning requires thinking. Does this look like that picture right now? (laughs) Planning is not that you get a cabal together in the back room and you say, let's do that. If we're gonna have even a mile of high-speed rail, you need to put a scenario in place. You need to think it through. Of course, it's gonna be challenged in court as well, which is okay. If you're gonna convert the energy system in this country or in the United States, you need long-term plans. We need planning, planning. It became such an evil word in the United States that you're not even allowed to say that word without risk of deportation. It's so not
0: that far off from being that situation in this country as well. Um, so you're what might have been a silver lining has already yeah. got pretty well, rusty, you know, rusty and uh, uh, fallen away. I'm but still do- trying to
3: find it. But <laughs> but, a-
0: but I, I, I just wonder if you mentioned China there and you talk very compellingly about why, in your view, America doesn't work. Britain, also you suggest, doesn't work very well. But you've written recently then that this is much more than just a moment, we're at the end of a longer period of American, maybe of Western dominance. Why have you come to that view?
3: That's, uh, I think, an objective understanding of uh, what's happened in modern history. And my feeling is uh, I'm, I'm at the center of what created the modern world. Uh, Britain was without question, uh, the most consequential country of modern history by far. And uh, this is the place where the Industrial Revolution started and the British Empire for its pluses and a lot of minuses uh, played the unique role in the world in uh, both the creating the world of mass industrialization and spreading a world globalization uh, of uh, industrialization that up until the 1930s was centered in this country. And after uh, World War II, during and afterwards, uh, the United States uh, contrived, I would say, to take the lead and take over uh, the, uh, uh, the the British role. Uh, I recently revisited in writing... Uh, one of the most important moments of modern history, not in any way to uh, deny at all the significance of it because it is one of the hinge moments of history when Winston Churchill said, uh, uh, called on the new world to come rescue the old world. Uh, And uh, the new world, uh, Franklin Roosevelt responded and uh, said, yes, but not your empire. (laughs) Uh, We will rescue uh, the old world from fascism, but we will be the next empire in essence. So uh, very cleverly, the United States lent you the money, Uh, didn't give the money, it was lend-lease, and thank you, we'll run the show afterwards. What happened in the post-World War II world was of course that Asia had the most astounding catching up of any time of history. China just had a lousy 500 years from uh, 1433 until roughly uh, 1949. I would say 1949 to 1978 wasn't such great shakes under Mao, but uh, when Deng Xiaoping came to power, what emerged was something we've never seen in world history, and that is a mega-civilization of 1.3 billion people achieving 10% per year economic growth for 35 years. And when you calculate what that means, that's a 30-time increase of the size of the Chinese economy. And so what's happened in essence is industrialization was all British at the start, and then it was British, American, and Western European And by the late 19th century, it was British, German, uh, and uh, American with the glimmers of Japan. And after World War II, it spread throughout East Asia. And now, there are three major centers of the world economy. There's Europe, there's the United States, we used to say North America, I don't know what counts anymore, Uh, and, uh, and Northeast Asia. And China, Japan, and Korea in the aggregate are much larger than the European Union and much larger than the United States and innovating more now also. That's very significant. So to my mind, we've moved to a multipolar world. We don't have the North Atlantic world anymore. We have at least three centers And I expect that India and South Asia could form a fourth center, though that's 20 years behind. And Africa, because of its changing demographics and economic potential, 30 or 40 years from now could constitute a fifth region. And of course, I'm being very, um, you know, painting with a, a recklessly broad brush, but the point I'm making is that the North Atlantic, the Western world, isn't running the world anymore. And a lot of what we're seeing is the end of that phase. And I'm not saying America has a strategy. We have an incoherence now. America hates the idea that uh, China's catching up, so they put some fool in the White House who wants to have a trade war or a hot war with China don't wish it for anything
0: but if no one block or no one country is in charge, for want of a better word. Yes. If that American era is over, what happens in that multipolar world? Because surely everyone's not just going to play nice, right? Yeah, well... So how do those three different competing, say it's the North, Northeast Asia, Europe, America, how do, how do people coexist?
3: You know, in, in all of social life, uh, there are two images... Uh, that we have, on the one image is the Hobbesian image of war of all against all, that it's a harsh world, you better be tough, Uh, everyone's going to try to take advantage of you, this is outright battle, and that's a Machiavellian or a Hobbesian, Thomas Hobbesian world. And then there's another vision, always, which is my God, we all share so many problems, could we cooperate with each other? And that's a world that we sometimes see glimpses of when the world adopts the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 or establishes the United Nations in 1945 at the end of World War II or adopts the Sustainable Development Goals in September 2015, or adopts the Paris Climate Agreement in December 2015, there's a yearning that couldn't we actually work together to solve problems? It's both of these are pretty deep-seated sides of our psyches and of our human nature, and both are really possible. The world could become the nasty, bitter, tough, Violent world that Steve Bannon seems to envision. Who the hell needs this guy, by the way? Uh, <laughs> or the world could be a world where we say, and my experience, this is my absolute true experience in life, is that everywhere I go for the United Nations, and I've been senior UN advisor for the past 17 years, people are in trouble and they want help. And that's true whether it's rich countries or poor countries. There's a feeling of mutual vulnerability right now. So it's not, you go to China, I have so many colleagues in China, China's choking on its air right now. China's desperate to try to get out of its coal dependence. China knows that it by itself can wreck the world climate, by the way, because China's emissions are so significant right now, roughly a quarter of all the world's emissions, that even if the rest of the world went to zero, China by itself could wreck the climate system. And China, by virtue of being 20% of the world's population and roughly 7% of the world's land mass, is incredibly densely populated and incredibly vulnerable to climate change. So my experience is we all have problems. (laughs) And if we all sat down and said, my God, what are we gonna do together about it? The whole mindset would be completely different. And that's why the mindset of a Trump-Bannon view, which is that the most important thing for us to do right now is to compete for primacy with China, or to have a trade war with China, or to build a wall with Mexico, it appeals to really deep instincts. It appeals to people who are hurting, people who have lost their status to people they don't like, and... Therefore, it resonates, but it is so wrong for our time that it, you know, it's a, a bit mind-boggling. So when you ask what are we gonna do about it, there really is the potential to cooperate. And how do you cooperate in a big, complicated world? We need to know where we're going together. We need to have shared sheet music. Actually, Adam Smith told us, don't worry about any of He didn't really tell us the, uh, the, the uh, much uh, redacted uh, and lesser followings of Adam Smith say, we don't need to do any of that. Markets are self-organizing, blah, 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 If you were taught that, boy, get your tuition back. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a lousy economics class. What we should be saying is we need to go towards decarbonizing the energy system because that's crucial. We need to be preserving biodiversity and making a common global strategy for that. That's really important. We need to be working together to fight communicable diseases like Ebola so that we don't have a Zika, Ebola, MERS, SARS, dengue, global epidemic because we're really close to that also. For one of these, we had it with AIDS where it started in a forest in West Africa and it became a global epidemic. So there are things we really need to do together. And then we need to reflect that we're living in the coolest time of all of science and technology, so we could actually do a lot of fun things together as well. And the most fun thing we could do together is let the robots take all our jobs so that we could go sit in the coffee shops.
1: Uh, And that's
3: my idea of basically the 21st century Garden of Eden. It's something like Starbucks.
0: Um, With free uh, Wi-Fi, presumably, and free um, bottomless coffee. Exactly. With Uh,
3: Wi-Fi uh, and uh, no, no baristas anymore, because that'll also be robots, but... They will know from your iris scan that you want a... Mm, uh, double, a, triple, a, a, caramel, a, yeah, exa- macchiato, to hold exactly. the foam,
0: whatever. <laughs> um, in a moment, I want to go to our conductorless orchestra. Uh, I will not try to conduct you. I will merely try to entice you to make your points to the professor. Um, but just finally, and, and briefly if I can, so we've got lots yeah. of time for questions. How hopeful do you feel about that, though? You've been closely involved to the, at the UN. The UN, let's take that as an example... Has at a time where there was significant political goodwill behind it, huge political capital invested in it by the west era, by, by the prime, by, by the, prime, the, the countries that had primacy at that point, and yet so many times it has fallen short. In this era, if we have a multipolar world with countries uh, with power who are not committed to it in the same way that people have been in the twentieth century, how can you be hopeful that we will be able to have that age of cooperation?
3: Some days I feel really good about this, and last Thursday was such a day uh, because it was a meeting of the G20 foreign ministers in Bonn, and I was there with Secretary General Guterres, and the meeting was about the sustainable development goals, and all of the G20 foreign ministers were there. That's 85% of the world's economy and it's about seventy percent of the world's population, so it's a pretty good room. And uh, Mr. Tillerson was there for his first uh, meeting, and all of the other foreign ministers. And the meeting started. Uh, Secretary General described the Sustainable Development Goals, and then it was wonderful. Really, each foreign minister, uh, each foreign minister spoke and. To my shock, each one spoke about how important these shared global goals were for their own country. And the Chinese foreign minister was first and he described how China has put the sustainable development goals at the center of its new five-year plan and that this is very serious. Uh, the Argentine foreign minister Susana Molcora spoke next. They're gonna, Argentina's gonna host the uh, G20 next year, and she spoke about the importance that Argentina attaches to this. Uh, Krista Freeland, uh, a a colleague of uh, yours from uh, journalism, uh, from the FT, who's now the Foreign Minister of Canada, spoke beautifully about uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's commitment to the Sustainable Development Goals. At about that moment, I looked over to see what Mr. Tillerson was taking in, and unfortunately, he was out of the room. Um, I ap- thought
0: you were going to say Boris Johnson. That's a- apparently a- talk telling uh, jokes, but that uh, would be a story.
3: He, 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 he met; he was meeting, I think, bilaterally uh, for most of the meeting, so he missed uh, all of this, unfortunately. Um, but nineteen of the twenty spoke, I think, uh, and uh, they all emphasized how important this was. Whether that's real or not, I don't know, but they spoke beautifully about it, and I was very happy to get the feeling that this is not total vapor, that this is uh, not so evanescent, and that they weren't just play-acting for nothing. They were saying, we take this seriously. I I think there's some truth to that, actually, And these goals were adopted because countries feel very nervous, actually. It's it's not because we're in a huzzah, how wonderful are we time, but there is a nearly universal nervousness, which in September 2015 led to the adoption of these goals, and in December, a few weeks later, led to the Paris Climate Agreement. Then you return to the Twitter world or you return to the, the kind of reality that we live day to day, and it's possible to be quite pessimistic as well. You know, we have a tremendous inertia, we have a tremendous capacity for years to pass without accomplishing anything. And as I, I may have mentioned, but just to reemphasize, the first climate treaty was 1992, so that was 25 years ago. We've done nothing yet. Almost nothing to actually implement that. So time flies and that's why it becomes more and more desperate. So I'll just end by saying that uh, at least as I uh, as I age, I don't become more mellow. Uh, I become uh, more worried uh, and uh, seeing that The the loss of time is the risk of irreversibilities. And if I could say this is without being too grim about it, because I do want to emphasize all of these problems are solvable. Actually, it's not even so hard to solve them. It's actually not even so hard to have uh, a society of 1.3 billion people grow 30-fold over... 35 years so miracles can happen right now because we have the capacity and technology to do such things So it's not out of reach our biggest problem is that we We have the risks of Catastrophic failure that's what we need to watch against we need to prevent going over the edge the number one is war, of course. Any talk, casual talk of war is an insanity in our world. Going in to overthrow somebody, Saddam, craziness, lies, stupidity. We see it. Going to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi, which was uh, "You're in our country and uh, Sarkozy's uh, great adventure." Really craziness. The world's too dangerous to play around this way. The suffering is huge, but worse than that, the cascading risks are absolutely not in anyone's control. And so that's the number one, is avoid that kind of catastrophe, and two, let's figure out how to avoid the environmental catastrophes, and then I'm Totally optimistic.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, as you say, time flies. Thank you so much for that. Let's now go to the floor. Uh, A couple of ground rules. So please stick your hand up if you've got a question. There are people with microphones who will come to you. We're going to take three questions at a time, if that's okay, so we can pack some in. If you're upstairs, please don't feel shy. There is a standing microphone right there. And when you ask your question, if you could please stand up and forgive me in advance if I interrupt you because we want to get lots of people in so first question lady there then if I can to the gentleman behind you who's holding up the red glasses case and then the lady there with the blue scarf
2: hello okay. it's Gabrielle Walker and thanks very much for <clears throat> not always um very optimistic talk but um I, I want to offer a little bit of hope And uh, to ask you about this particular aspect of it, which is you talked about uh, the the, uh, terrible situation where politicians are so disconnected from the people, these politicians that we think can actually do something. And I would offer that there are actually a lot of politicians that are hugely connected to people in the US, in your own country, and right across the world. And that's politicians in cities and states and regions. And if you add to that business leaders, you talked about Rex Tillerson, but haven't mentioned all the business leaders who now have a renewed sense of the need to connect for the the sake of showing that they have a purpose and that they have a mission in the world. And then on top of that, the NGOs who are connecting with them. I would suggest that one of the main reasons that we got the Paris Agreement was the role of these non-state actors and they're becoming increasingly important.
0: Okay, so we should be optimistic about local politics. And to the gentleman there behind...
3: Yeah, I, thank you very much. I get it. Uh, in a very competitive and, and Hobbesian uh, world, we, we need to be a little nicer to each other. Uh, no one's listening to the planners and thinkers. But uh, my question is, how will uh, this populist streak end?
0: Okay, and then the lady behind me, the blue scarf. <laughs> Thank you very much for the talk.
2: If I may ask one economist to another, um, you talked a lot about communication. How could economists communicate better to help in this situation?
0: Okay, great questions. Thank you. So could local politics be the answer? People are more connected to what's happening locally. How will populism end? So
3: I think one part of, one part of the uh, issue of communications is these are not simple topics and we shouldn't uh, pretend that they are, but we need ways to communicate that go beyond the uh, incredible uh, uh, short-termism of the media. I don't have, I really don't have any glib solution to that, but it's a disconnect, C.P. Snow talked about it already in a different way of the two cultures, Uh, from 1958, so that was uh, 60 years ago. Uh, But this is a little bit different. We need to be able to calm down to have a discussion. One thing I'm recommending for Earth Day in the U.S., and we'll go home tomorrow to try to get it organized, is for the colleges and universities around the United States to open their doors on Earth Day, to invite the publics in, and the congressman in, and to take roll call, to have a teaching about climate change, to spend a day so that people can understand and ask, what is this really about? What is implied by this? Not with a top-down curriculum, which would be politically suspect, but I want everywhere in the country for people to be able to come through the doors and talk, listen, debate, and have the experience of talking to a real-life scientist. I had a remarkable, for me, uh, exchange with a very nasty emailer last week when I said something about climate change and they wrote a vitriolic, vulgar uh, email to me uh, about what a unintelligent person I am. (laughs) Uh, And uh, didn't you know Fact X, Mr. Know-It-All? And so the Fact X was uh, what we now call fake news. Uh, Unfortunately, what's now called fake news is mostly real news. Uh, So this adds to the complication of it. I think Alan Turing (laughs) probably had something to say about this. Uh, But... uh, He sent me a website, which was a complete confabulation. But in the first line, it said, is so-and-so scientist at such-and-such institute in California. And it took about three seconds to determine such-and-such institute doesn't even exist. So I wrote back to him, and I said, it doesn't exist. And on and on. And he said, are you calling me a liar? How about this? And I answered that. How about this? And finally, after four of these rounds, which was getting more and more bizarre and and exhausting, I said, I thought I had a nice idea, very polite. I said, uh, thank you very much, it's been nice to talk to you. Perhaps you would like to stop into your local college or university and have a chat with uh, somebody there about these issues, and he wrote back, I did that, mister. They all talk like you. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, this is, it's a little bit tricky. But, but actually, let me put the other side of this again because everything is also a little bit complicated in this. About 70% of Americans say we should be investing in renewable energy right now, and the climate's changing. So even while I track down one of the clear 30%, that denies this. What's really going on in the United States is politics and interest groups uh, and uh, vested interests of, of uh, the Koch brothers, not predominantly this particular point. But that's one part of, of the communication.
0: So do you acknowledge that academics, experts, for want of a better word, um, it's so strange that that even seems to be a controversial word these days. Yeah, yes. um, <laughs> Let's reclaim it. Um, Do you acknowledge you haven't done enough? People have been too wrapped up in their own bubbles, and that's been part of the problem.
3: Look, in general, economists are not great communicators, and scientists, even worse. Uh, (laughs) You know, a scientist's job is not public speaking, and it shows uh, often. And a scientist is so uh, typically... uh, Expert in a language of precision in a particular uh, area that no one can understand what they're talking about, mm-hmm. and many of my favorite scientist colleagues have no ability to calibrate what other people are hearing from what they're saying. So I often am happy to play the dumbing down role uh, because I can listen, and I try to put that in uh, in. Uh, ways that are more easily understood, but at at a serious matter, it's a complicated matter. Scientists wanna do their science and translating these issues right now, we don't have time for uh, anything but a lot more active public discussion, public deliberation and public education on these issues.
0: Okay, let's have some more. Public discussion. Let's go up to the top. Okay, so I've got two questions up there. Let's go for it.
4: Hello. Um, you spent 45 minutes laughing at Trump, laughing at his lack of planning, laughing at his strategy, laughing at his dismissal of experts. However, the planning, strategy, and experts of the elite over the last 20, 25 years has created the mess we're in, and maybe we need this populist revolt. Okay.
3: Maybe we question. need Sorry?
0: Maybe like, we need sort of the populist revolt. Populist revolt. Or, populist
4: revolt. Or, no, we need yeah. to change oh, our thinking in some way. Yeah.
0: Great, and then the gentleman behind
1: you, we'll get two in at the same time if we can. Uh, Thank you. Uh, My question is, you know, with the continuous, non-stop, politically motivated redrawing of the electoral map in the US, the gerrymandering, uh, and now Clinton lost the election because of a system that was put hundreds hundreds of years back, uh, a pre-commitment, and because of the Electoral College, right. and with a very low approval rate of the Congress. And you just mentioned that 70% of the American population wants renewable energy. Uh, but the government has never really reflected what the people wanted in a way. So if you gauge democracy, both as, a, as an output as an, uh, and as an input, both as a process uh, and as what it comes out of it, can we really refer to the U.S. as a democracy right now?
0: Okay, so two great questions. Um, do we need the populist revolt because experts have failed people over the last 25 years? And given the strangenesses, I suppose, of the Electoral College, is America actually an example of democracy, and has it ever been?
3: Yeah. Um, look, we need a big change of policy and I I do think that the last 36 years in the United States is the right timing for this because the age of Reagan has continued basically until now, Uh, meaning that for 36 years there has been a kind of uh, denial of the responsibility of government for the common good and there has been a constant campaign for tax cuts and for deregulation. And even Obama, though I can't elaborate and it may surprise you to hear me say it, didn't really change the dynamic of that, nor certainly did Bill Clinton uh, during his presidency. We've been in one political jag for a long time. Trump is not the answer to this, and he's not the answer to it because uh, while he is a populist response, he's not a response that provides answers to these problems. He is going to, in fact, double down on all of these bad trends. Uh, He denies the climate. I don't have to belabor the point. He is going to try to cut taxes massively. So uh, he is uh, not going to do... uh, He is deregulating the fragile uh, construction of uh, some regulatory scaffolding that was put back in place after the 2008 financial crisis, and he's blaming foreigners for the ills. So in this sense, to say, do we need the populace? No, we need a change of direction. So I'm not even despondent uh, in this sense about American electoral politics per se. I'm obviously uh, very, uh, very concerned about where we are right now, but I'm not despondent about the American public. Remember Donald Trump's approval rating right now, as I'm not up to date for you today, I forgot to look, but it was running at between 38 and 40% with 55% opposed. That's unprecedented for a new president anyway, but it also makes clear this this man's not running a demagogic government that has the support of the majority of Americans, however nasty, he is running a demagogic government that does not have even a bare majority of support, but has a a very loud following, but is not the majority, and most Americans are quite agitated right now. So in this sense, I think the question is right. Do we need something to shake up the establishment? Yes, but accuracy please. Uh, It doesn't mean that anything uh, is uh, the next answer and it's never true in human affairs that uh, well, uh, things have to get even worse to get better. That's the worst line of public policy in history. Never hope for things to get worse because we're not in control. There's no or, there's no conductor. And when things get worse, they can go from bad to worse to even worse. So never hope for things to get worse so they can get better. Always hope for things to get better.
0: Okay, we are getting short of time now. So two requests: if you can keep your questions short and Professor Sachs, if you can keep your answers slightly yeah. shorter, that would be great. So let's go to that back section there. Lady there at the back.
2: Hi, good evening.
0: Um, Quick question, could you just
2: explain what kind of policies you would like to see implemented to address the unequal distribution of wealth that we see both uh, within countries and between countries, and if you could add into your question the robots and technology that you're very optimistic about, because it seems to me that a lot of jobs that Trump is trying to, or that Trump is talking about, haven't been lost to Mexico or China, but to automatization, and... Therefore, isn't the technology going to exacerbate this problem, and how do we mitigate against it? Okay.
0: Right. two good, good questions there. Hi. Um, I was wondering how we go about implementing change to save our climate when it's something that most lawmakers, unfortunately, are indifferent to or against. Yeah. Okay. What kind of policies do you think we could adopt to go for wealth redistribu- redistribution?
3: Best measure of inequality is called the Gini coefficient. It varies between zero, complete equality, one, one person has everything, everyone else has nothing. The OECD keeps the score for all our countries. And you can go online, oecd.org, and look up the Gini coefficient. You can look it up in two ways. One, the inequality of the income we take home by the market earnings. And then second, the inequality after We pay taxes, and after, we get transfers and benefits. So, the key is that most countries are fairly similar in the pre-tax and transfer inequality in the rich world. But the countries differ hugely after taxes and transfers. The most equal countries are Denmark, Norway, Sweden. Why? They tax like hell, and then they distribute for quality health, quality education, clean air, clean water, long vacation time, childcare, preschool, maternity leave, paternity leave. By the way, they love it, because when (laughs) I do the rankings every year of the world's happiest countries, they're also the happiest countries in the world. Tax me more!
0: So that's the answer.
3: Okay, so (laughs) the answer is, we need redistribution. And with the robots, the plan is the robots are going to do all the work. Don't tell them. <laughs> and then we're go- there's going to be all this capital income, and it's going to be the Googles and the Groogles and this one and that one, and they're all going to be worth gazillions of dollars. And then they're going to pay taxes, and they're going to distribute the taxes to all of us because we're going to be at the coffee shop, like I promised you, and that's how the world's going to work.
0: The making them okay? pay taxes so straightforward. Absolutely. So, um, so, second one: How do you get lawmakers to listen on climate?
3: Here's what to do: Go to your local college and university, and say we need a climate plan for London, for Britain. We'll include Scotland. Uh, Scotland's even,
0: in Britain. Yeah, they at are the still right. I know.
3: <laughs> Uh, And we will uh, also even uh, think about Europe too, Uh, and seriously, what's needed are plans. And the plans are not going to come from the politicians, the plans have to come from the energy experts. And the energy experts need to stand up and say, you know what, it's not even so hard. That's what they have to tell and then some entrepreneurial politicians are going to stand up and say I was at UCL this morning and I was at Cambridge this afternoon and at Oxford and at Leeds and uh, at Durham and I heard the same thing from all of them we've got an easy solution to this problem and it's going to save the world for your children and they're going to get elected and that's honestly what we have to do we have to get serious about what's really at stake here, not theories, risks, my telling you about how horrible it's going to be, but what to do. And don't wait for the politicians, they don't have a clue. And the government ministries, at best, are gonna ask the universities anyway. So cut out the middlemen, get the universities to stand up, and next time you're near a local university, say, what's your energy plan for Britain? You don't have one? They do. And let's get a little competition among our universities.
0: Just finally, if I may, a very simple question. Are we, right now, as we go about our daily lives at the start of 2017, witnessing the first days of a new world order? That dramatic statement. Is that right?
3: We're in the middle of really profound change, no question about it. If we're smart and we're lucky, we will get to something very good because we're not in a situation like uh, uh, 1447, 1347, excuse me, uh, of uh, the uh, plague and nobody knows what it is. There's no problems that we face that we don't understand with really exquisite knowledge. We're very lucky. So that if we find our way through this moment, which is really a moment of plate tectonics, it's geotectonics changing right now, we have a chance for really that wonderful world. We have to be really careful. And if we get through to the other side, I want to meet you in the coffee shop.
2: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.